today's episode of Future Says, we have Sahara Sadi, AI research lead at King. Prior to joining the famous creators of Candy Crush, she had applied research to user experience at Spotify, distributed deep learning at Cluster One, NLP at Meltwater, and product recognition at Oculus AI. She's also a co-founder of Women in Data Science, AI and ML Sweden. Hello and welcome to Future Says Sahar. Great to have you on the show to talk about all things AI in gaming. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, excited to be here. <laughs> so I guess the shared histories of AI and gaming are inextricably linked to the years. We've seen a lot of use cases. It dates all the way back to the late 1940s when the first one player online chess game was initially considered. Through the years, of course, things have gotten bigger and better than ever before. But one thing has always remained constant, that the gaming industry has been one of the earliest adopters of new, novel, groundbreaking research in AI for a range of use cases, creating more realistic gaming environments, accelerating the game and level development process, things like personalization, content automation, we've all seen. And many people would go so far as to say that AI is not just transforming gaming, but with that, it's transforming how humans in general act with, perceive, and sort of interact with artificial intelligence. So it's a very, very exciting time. And King themselves have about 300 million monthly gamers. So they have a scale that that most people in the industry can only dream about. And with the gaming industry set to topple $250 billion by 2025, there's no better time to talk about this and no better person than Sahar Asadi to tell us all about it. So Sahar, let's jump right in. And and can you talk to us about the evolution of AI in gaming and and where we sort of fit today? Sure. I think uh, you gave a very good intro, like, you know, where, where it started. Uh, there's, uh, like, you know, I, last year I had a lecture at the university where I was telling about the history. And if you look at it, it's like, you know, even definition of, uh, artificial intelligence also started from like, you know, together with the trying to solve games and puzzles and, uh, has been like the gaming has been used as a test bed for AI. But also, like you would be surprised to see that a lot of gaming companies didn't start it with having AI as the core part of their business, because there's a lot of easy wins that like you could have with heuristics, and at the same time, also there's a lot of creative elements that builds games. But uh, recent years, like you know, by recent years I mean like the past decade, this has uh, changed. So a lot of gaming companies started looking more and uh, in applying AI in different aspects. So looking at automation around content, looking at personalizations, game economies, and uh, like, you know, chatbots and like, you know, narratives in gaming. If you think about also the other side of like, you know, how AI is contributing to the development of AI and think about companies like DeepMind and like, you know, research groups in academia, a lot of interesting things are coming out from there with the goal of achieving general AI, like, you know, uh, getting towards that direction and also using using gaming as a testbed for developing new ideas. Like, you know, we see a lot of progress in reinforcement learning, in uh, using like, you know, generative models that is uh, happening uh, by using gaming as a testbed. 
And can you dig into some of those use cases then? I think you're two and a half years or so at King yeah. Sahara. So what have you spent most of your time at? So the time that I've spent at King has been in, in like, you know, a couple of areas. One of them, uh, which uh, has been very exciting, is around content automation. So creating content is uh, one of the important pillars in gaming. And there's a lot of uh, creative work that uh, goes through by designers. And having that, it also improves the quality of the game experience that users have. But uh, also, there are a lot of steps that they are repetitive and they are time consuming. And uh, we would like to take away those steps and rather have designers to spend time on creative side of it. So with that, our team has been focusing on two areas, validating content. So before releasing content to players, uh, validating its quality and uh, helping designers to iterate faster and test the quality of the levels in terms of the dynamic of the gameplay by designing playtesting bots. And the other aspect is their own generation. So if there are a lot of levels, for instance, in Candy Crush, because some design principles has changed or like, you know, we got to a point we would like to refine some of those levels. So like, you know, how we can automatically tweak those levels. So for those two, we started big projects. So we have developed a bot that is already part of the production and designers use for validating the content. And we have published around those. We've looked at supervised learning methods. We have looked at also reinforcement learning. And the other side is the, for content tweaking, where we managed to put together this validating bot together with some evolutionary methods together to create a content tweaking agent. And being able to release some of the levels with this bot actually was something exciting to see. And the second part is more around like, you know, understanding more the user experience or so looking at clustering of users. One of the things that I really like and we have been spending time is that a lot of research that happens in universities is hard to bring them and use them directly in industry. So we have been investigating what are the requirements of industrial applications, especially in gaming. And if you want to use clustering and also like recommender systems to areas that we looked at and we have published there, how you can improve the state of the art in order to be able to solve and address the scale and the complexity of the dynamics that you have in gaming, especially mobile games. Okay. And how do you actually measure the benefits that these use cases are bringing King? I think uh, you're touching on a very good, like your interesting topic. It's very challenging to be a researcher in industry because uh, you also need to support and understand the business cases and also align your time and like priorities based on those, right? So like we've put a framework, for instance, where we are looking at different phases. So we have discovery, we have proof of concept development and operationalizing machine learning. And in discovery phase, we basically go crazy, try out ideas. We look at previous work. We look at data and opportunities. It's usually a short cycle. And after like this initial assessment, we look at estimate of how long time this research will take, the potential business impact that it can bring, and try to pitch that as an idea and to get prioritization on. Then proof of concept is the longer time that we get after showcasing with this discovery phase. 
And then like, you know, we spend time on a project. And the last phase you mentioned was sort of operationalization. Yes. Yeah. And that's something I've seen you present before, Sahar. So can you talk to us about AI ops, the benefits that would bring? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, one of the like interesting things that or developments that recently we had at King is like, you know, investing further in machine learning to democratize it and like, you know, make it accessible for everyone in the company to use, especially data scientists. And then also like, you know, understanding better where you have like, you know, more production systems, like, you know, how to maintain them and support them and be able to scale the work that we do. And for that, we started uh, having a, a sister team to my team, which is called ML Ops. It's turning to a hot topic, like, you know, the past uh, couple of years, as you know, the goal there is to not provide tools and APIs and also like platform where we are taking away all of these complications of engineering from data scientists to be able to explore the data, train their model, and then easily deploy it and monitor it or and if needed to retrain it and uh, look at like also like their features and get insights about. The thing is that the tools and the engineering uh, packages, they are developing fast and things change quickly. And for a data scientist to be able to be the Swiss army of solving everything and spending 80% of the time actually on fixing the engineering challenges is something that I think we should move away from. And that is one of the ambitions of having such a platform like MLOps. So do you think MLOps is as important as, you know, investing in MLOps is as important as investing in ML model development? Should it really be hand in hand? Should there be no scale in terms of maturity? Every company doing ML should be doing MLOps as well? I think it really depends on what type of company and what level of AI maturity we are talking about. There are good articles that they are talking about maturity stages. Like, you know, do we have the culture and adoption in the company? Do we have the data available and data models available in the company? And then like, you know, the modeling that sometimes you don't really, like, you know, the company might go with two models and the models, they don't need like, you know, sensitive SLAs or like low latencies. You don't really need that much support of operationalizing. And you might just want to have it in the one simple team, like ML engineers doing this job or like hiring just one ML ops engineer as part of an ML team to do it. But if you get to a larger companies, that is something that is inevitable. I also want to highlight that like there are a lot of good platforms that so I wouldn't say a company would need to get into building everything by themselves. There are also both open source, but also like, you know, enterprises that can be used. Uh, so as a first step, I would avoid that. But at the same time, it's important if the company is in a certain level of maturity in AI to consider that nothing comes for free, right? And you need to invest and consider that there is like, you know, you need this initial investment to be able to have this enablers for the data scientists to be able to great to have great amazing uh, works in production. Yeah, I think you mentioned an interesting point on hiring, and I know Gartner said for the coming year one of the emerging roles is an ex ops coach. Yeah. Um, is that something you're looking at at King? I know you've been hiring quite recently, Sahar. Mm -hmm. So we don't have 
uh, or we are not planning to have something like XOps, but we have XOps coach, but we are hiring. I actually, we currently have two ML ops engineers in our team. And like, you know, building up that team definitely requires different set of skills, like, you know, existing ones, like, you know, data engineers, ML engineers, and ML ops together. But also thinking about like, you know, what comes next in future, I think there are also some other areas, like for instance, advocates for ethics, especially in Europe, AI ethics and fairness is something important, especially with like EU legislations around the AI trustworthiness and like, you know, topics around responsible AI, it's important to have advisory groups that they are looking at, like, you know, fairness and the being able to explain what happens for the user and how AI is used and move away from AI as a black box. So I see that's one also becoming a big future role. So you've just introduced my favorite topic, Sahara, in terms of <laughs> sort of responsible AI. So can you tell us at King how you ensure transparency in your division? So like my personal motto and also that is kind of aligned with what our team motto is, is to bring research to product and production responsibly. So we are trying to, I think it's important to consider that in the hiring as well. So like, you know, that should be part of the culture that like you care about, like you have a diverse team that reflects on like, you know, thinking about what the user experience would be and believes and cares about that. So that's a very first step that we have been looking at. Then the second part dimension is also like looking at explainability and interpretability. For instance, now we have an intern working on this topic. We have an industrial PhD student who would touch on this topic in her, her thesis as well. And we want to know, like, you know, if you are, first of all, whether we use like, you know, right features, and if you're using these features, how this affects the output of the model and integrating explainability as part of like platform of machine learning is an important piece that our team is striving for. So those are a few like, you know, areas that we have been trying to consider. And then a third pillar is also like, you know, bringing awareness to the company, right? So we have been also giving talks about like, you know, responsible AI and how this affects this and uh, like, you know, bringing that into also considerations in operations and executions. Yeah, I think that ties into something you mentioned earlier in terms of the culture. So when you want to democratize yeah. data, oftentimes the biggest obstacle is culture. So yeah. the sort of awareness workshops you do, Sahar, can you tell us a bit more about that and how would you advise other companies to create this mm -hmm. data-driven culture? I think the thing is that nowadays, a lot of companies are data-driven, right? But it's also important to know what kind of data we are using and why we are using and being cautious and mindful of that. So King is a very diversity inclusion-aware company. So there's a lot of workshops that are happening inside the company or like, you know, having also like uh, groups, for instance, Women at King or like Caliodoscope that is about like, you know, uh, different ethnicities and many other groups that we have that they are promoting a lot of different aspects that about both about like, you know, employees, but also that is reflecting also that they are our users that we are yeah. bringing in. And of course, Sahar, 
you know, you're being modest here, but of course you don't just work at King and you do a lot of work outside of King. So could you tell the audience more about the Women in Data Science Stockholm and some of your initiatives in that space? Yeah, thanks. Yes, I mean, that's uh, something very close to my heart. Since uh, now, almost five years ago, we started with two of my co-founders, Galina Shubina and Rebecca Jakobson. We started uh, Women in Data Science Sweden. Now we've changed recently the name Women in Data Science AI and ML Sweden. As you see, like the field is changing and like, you know, like, you know, you need to also reflect that there. Now our organization has grown. So we have like, you know, four more amazing uh, women joining us. We are running Women in Data Science with the Stockholm conference every year. So we have done four of them so far, which is in association with the Stanford, a global initiative where like, you know, uh, a lot of uh, countries and cities in the world around March, their conference uh, featuring women on the stage and building community, developing this community. We started with that and then we realized that we want to do more because there is so much interest from this community here in Sweden. So we have been running mentorship programs. We have been setting up meetups and uh, a few social events. We are also running some long-term projects, for instance, very often you hear that uh, from conference organizers that we couldn't find a female speaker. While there are plenty of them, it's just they are modest and they don't promote themselves as much. So we are putting together a database of uh, speakers to share externally and also looking at the talent in general in Sweden in this area if we can. So we are talking to, for instance, we are Sweden, if we could do something together to get to know the trends in Sweden and potentially collaborate with Nordic as well. So not just limit our network to Sweden. Yeah, it's awesome initiative. And I was lucky enough to be in Stockholm for the Data Innovation Summer recently. <laughs> so I met a lot of these guys in person and they're all fantastic. And we're definitely on the right path. But um, yeah. Sahar, for, you know, I guess executives maybe watching this, what are some easy steps they could take to increase the diversity of their workforce? Do you have any tips in that respect? That's a difficult question to answer, right? So one of the things is that, like, you know, going through talking about diversity and inclusion, there are a lot of bias that we are not aware of. So I think taking those tests around unconscious bias, it helps us a lot to know more about, like, where our bias is. It's not only related to women. It could be about, like, you know, age and a lot of other things, right? Then the other thing is that diverse committee in the interviews usually also brings more diverse tasks, a group. And also, I think very often we are also like, you know, the ads, if you look at the advertisements, they are not really thought through. You see advertisements that I would like to have uh, someone, a machine learning engineers or MLOps engineer with 10 years of experience. These titles are not even 10 years old. So someone with a high confidence, which is like more prevalent, maybe like, you know, in certain genders, then they would like, you know, look at the checklist. Okay, maybe that means software engineer, I'm fine and I don't meet these requirements. It's okay, I still apply. And that person might be a great person. But the thing is that a lot of people don't apply and that is very common in women. So being more mindful and run through those kind of advertisements to through those who can like give input on would be something great. 
And I think companies are also, it's not just hiring, but it's also retaining. And I think there's a lot of challenge also without having good mentors for women in the companies to develop their career and become more senior, especially as individual contributors or impactful leaders. And that's something I think that the companies could invest on too. Yeah, it's a good point. So at the conference a couple of weeks ago, Matthias Frass from Nordia mentioned that for AI to work, it depends on two things, people and culture. So yeah, exactly. we spoke about culture, speaking about people now, I completely agree that it's not just getting people in, it's retaining that best talent in your organization. So Sahar, how do you do that then? How do you, within your team itself, what are their career trajectories? How do you avoid employee churn? I think I learned a lot from my previous manager and he was like, you know, he was not trying to put the person in a box described that wanted to hire, was looking at the person and see like, you know, is this person would be an impactful person joining to my organization and then investing on that person, right? So like, you know, one of the things, for instance, we do is that now we're going to have that in two weeks as well. We have hack weeks. Like we collect the, the times of like, you know, that we, you could have a small hacks, uh, hack days. We put them together and we have a chunk of one week. We do a good investment there of like, you know, helping the team to come up with ideas, pair up and like work on that topics that they like. One of our papers, one of our good papers actually came out of one of these hack weeks. And also one of the methods that we have in production also came from one of these hack weeks. So it's quite fun. It's very rewarding. It's a small thing, but it's still like, you know, it helps a lot in development. The other thing is that I think a lot of people thrive if you trust them and give them autonomy. And that is what we have been trying to do in our team. And it's been really rewarding. Initially, it probably takes a lot of time to coach and like, you know, train people, but it's amazing, like, you know, what they can achieve. So giving the opportunities, having more defined career track around like individual country, because now I'm jumping to another topic, but, you know, management track, historically has been very clear path and it's also like much easier probably to measure and like you know to progress but if you go towards tech leads so something like my role or like you know if you go towards individual contributors especially in data science and machine learning they are not really well defined because if you fall into engineering department is one thing if you fall into design or products uh, department is another thing. And like, you know, it's really hard and sometimes frustrating for individuals to learn how to grow their career. So it's good if the companies could help and define the crafts and like, you know, what they see the craft of machine learning to be defined in their company and how they can help individuals to grow themselves. Yeah. Would the role of AI research lead, Sahar, do you see that? A lot? Should more companies have this? It's probably not. Well, I mean, there's a lot of these roles of like director of machine learning, head of machine learning, or like, you know, research lead. I think research is not a well-defined area in companies. If you go to very small, top largest companies in the world, like, you know, Google, they can afford to have large research groups, right? 
But for other companies, it is less and it's been like a less of a priority. Uh, so research lead is kind of not that common, I would say, in smaller companies. But I would say like, you know, it's important to have applied perspective as a researcher in or research lead in industry, because a lot of, we talked a bit about this, but a lot of uh, solutions from research in academia cannot be directly applied in industry. And very often also industry is not aware of potential solutions that you could bring in from other domains of research to solve a problem. And that is where I think uh, a researcher needs to grow to be able to lead research in industry. It's a fun and rewarding thing, but it's also very challenging. Yeah, 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 yeah. So fun and rewarding. For me, research has to be one of the cooler jobs in AI. You must be very <laughs> forward-looking and forward-thinking, Sahar. So it's a rapidly evolving space, but where are we moving next? What does the next five years in AI and gaming show us? Well, I think it's a difficult question. And like there's a lot of predictions, especially when you get towards the end of the year, you see a lot of articles that I keep an eye on and like, you know, talks about the trends. So it's hard to say, but uh, some of it is ties to applications. So for instance, especially like in the past uh, two, three years, given the circumstances with COVID, like a lot of attention has gone to medtech and machine learning for health. I see that continuing. There are also some trends that are more research specific, like for instance, certain methods like you know transformers and these kind of things. I think the research on reinforcement learning, the research on transformers and on explainability, especially explainability will continue and develop further. And so on the gaming front, there was an article this week in the BBC about the RoboCup. And I know <laughs> sort of a different game. I know you had experience a few years ago, Sahar. Yeah. Could you also introduce that topic maybe and tell us where we yeah. stand in there? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, RoboCup has been around since 1996, seven, And the vision is to have, and by the way, it's RoboCup with U and not O for those who are not familiar with it. But the goal is to get to a point where we have a team of uh, humanoid robots that can play football against a team of uh, human players. And the goal was for like, you know, by 2050, so mid-century to be able to achieve that. With that, like, you know, RoboCop consists of a few leagues. So there are leagues, like for instance, simulation, where it's focused around the distributed AI and not to think about the, like, you know, the physical constraints of the robots, but also like the intelligence of that, where I've been working on for a few years. And then there are also like middle size, small size robots that like you bring in computer vision, some of the hardware of like wheel steering, there's humanoid part where like, you know, they learn stability and then learn play together. And there are also like in recent years, like other parts like, you know, robot at work, robot at home. There's also rescue where the agents try to rescue in a scenario that there are urban disasters. So it's been a great platform, very rewarding. Every year there's a symposium. There's a, also like, you know, the competitions happening. So I 
when I was bachelor student, I joined there in the simulation. So my teammates, we got third place award there. And I also worked for a few years as a technical committee, organizing committee, and also exec committee in RoboCop. It's been definitely a very fun journey to learn things, try out things, and get to know a community of great researchers, which many of them now, they are also in gaming companies or collaborate with gaming companies and has definitely motivated me to come to this domain. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's what I think is so amazing about gaming is, as you said earlier, this is sort of a test bed for innovation and all the latest and greatest go through gaming and then are generally sort of embedded into the daily life and other applications. Sahar, we've spoken about a lot and we've spoken past the time, (laughs) but any final words of wisdom from yourself before we close out the show? I mean... It's been like fun to talk about all of these topics. Yeah, of course, like if you let me talk, I'll talk another probably two hours about these topics because they're, I'm really passionate. I think it's a luxury to have a job that you also enjoy it and like it's fun. I think maybe final words is just a lot of time machine learning in, in recent years is considered as like, it's treated as a hype. So companies come and say that, oh, Everyone is doing machine learning, so we should do machine learning. So let's build a model. I think both for the company, like, you know, C-level, but also for like, you know, machine learning engineers in the company, both of them. It's really important to understand the needs so that what we build is actually relevant. And it's also important to invest and give it some time. So I mentioned about this like playtesting, but it was not just a one day thing that we built it. Like, you know, we, it was like, you know, maybe like, you know, two, three years of projects, gradual projects that got to this place that now it's in production. So be patient, be realistic, build the culture. And also for researchers or machine learning engineers, understand the needs before jumping into the state of the art and putting that in production. Love it. Brilliant way to finish Sahar. Words of wisdom, indeed. Really appreciate your time today. We'll include some of those things in the show notes, and hopefully we'll get another two hours later this year or next year in person, Sahar, where we can continue the conversation. (laughs) I look forward to that, and uh, thanks again for having me. Thanks for watching. Now, next up on alter.com forward slash future says will be Ming Tang, Chief Data Officer at the NHS. She'll be speaking about how the UK's health service is responding to COVID-19 with a digital-first approach. Hope to see you there.